Welcome to the Westside Investors Network, WIN, your community of investing knowledge for growth. This is the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast for real estate professionals by real estate professionals. This show is focused on the next step in your career, investing. Thank you for listening. And please, if you like our content, rate us on your podcast provider. And now your hosts, AJ and Chris Shepard. Hey, we've got Chris Schwint today on our show. He's a seasoned investor. Uh, he's participated in auction deals, pre-foreclosure deals. And today we're going to talk a lot about that. One of the best things I think we talk about is how to structure deals before they get to that foreclosure arena. Chris is a wealth of knowledge and excited to share his information with you today. Without further ado, let's get to it. Well, Chris, thank you for coming on to the Win podcast. We really appreciate having you here. I know that you're a former attorney, current real estate investor, and an expert negotiator. So if you would, would you uh, mind telling us a little bit about yourself as well? Sure. I'll accept those titles. <laughs> um, yeah, I've been buying and selling properties here locally and regionally for, I guess, over 15 years now. And prior to that, and during some of that time, I, I did have my bar license and practiced as an attorney in real estate and business law. And yeah, I mean, the real estate realm has kind of been my main gig as a principal. And yeah, I've been doing that for a while. A lot of the focus has been around distressed property types, including foreclosures. Cool. And I think that that's a lot of what we want to talk about today is kind of your experience in foreclosures. But before we get to that, kind of, can you tell us like how, how did you originally get into real estate? Well, I was always kind of interested in it and I was coming to the end of law school and sort of when, when I was in law school was the dot-com boom and bust that followed and so I had dabbled a little bit in the stock market and saw my account go up and down. <laughs> and I thought, well, maybe real estate will be a little bit better. Yeah, a little bit more stable. And maybe. I just started reading books. Yeah, I just started reading books about investing in real estate and got excited about it and started going to a local networking group meeting here and there just to get more information, learn more, meet people involved in buying and selling real estate. and. Yeah, that's kind of how I got started. Nice. Did you have any kind of like mentors that helped you out or maybe people that you partnered with? Yeah, I actually met a gentleman there at one of those uh, real estate events and he started teaching courses. Well, actually there was a couple of different things. I first, I took a seminar with one group and learned how to do lease purchase option transactions, primarily with pre-foreclosures. And I ended up doing some deals with them. They weren't in the end, running their business very effectively and kind of created a bunch of messes. But I was able to extradite my few deals out of that extricate, I should say. Yeah. <laughs> so kind of kind of and, pull your um, deals away from what they were doing. Yeah, exactly. But I did learn a lot there. And then, like I said, I took another more higher level kind of mentoring course with another a gentleman in a smaller group where we focused on creative deal structuring and transactions and just learned a lot through that course. And it was very hands-on. And he became a bit of a mentor to me in terms of cutting my teeth on a few creative real estate transactions. That's really interesting. So your background is, is pretty unique when it comes to real estate investors. I haven't met very many former attorneys who decided to take the leap and just go straight into investing. So I guess my question is, what 
what do you think makes made you different than all the other attorneys that didn't go into real estate? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think it's just because I had a very entrepreneurial mindset and I got really tired of working the billable hour thing for a boss pretty quickly. (laughs) And so I was looking for something outside of that and was willing to take the risk of being an entrepreneur and the risk of failure and the risk of losing money or not making it sooner and more aggressively, I think, than what most people can stomach, honestly. You know, most attorneys just either want or need or feel they need to get that regular paycheck from the boss for billing the hours and, you know, going through that whole program, continuing throughout the years. And even within the legal firms, you have, in my experience, kind of two types of attorneys. One is the billable hourly workhorse who, you know, doesn't want to really necessarily drum up the business. And then you have the rainmakers who bring in the clients and bring the business in. And yeah, I mean, or just not even necessarily charismatic, but more, yeah, interested in people and building relationships and networking and doing those things and bringing in the business. Yeah. Yeah. So networking is essentially. So I tended towards that side, even in that realm. But yeah, I would say as far as, you know, what happened was I started doing what I told you to get into it. And as soon as I got a couple of deals under my belt where I was making more money, you know, in a a couple of deals than I was on a monthly paycheck and I could see this was replicable and I understood it and it was out there for me to grab if I wanted it. I pretty quickly was like, Hey guys, you know, I just can't, I can't work full time here anymore. I need to go to part time. (laughs) And then quite shortly after that, I was like, Bye. Yeah. Sign on a part-time, <laughs> huh? Yeah. So were, yeah. were those first deals that you were getting in, was that into auctions or was did you start out doing different types of deals? No, it was mostly pre-foreclosure. I mean, so it okay. did have to do with foreclosure because, you know, pre-foreclosure is obviously a large pool of mostly distressed sellers who yeah. need a solution. And so bringing solutions, creative solutions to the table that might solve their problems or give them a chance to resolve the situation other than just, you know, marching straight toward the auction is what I ended up specializing in initially. So that's a pretty unique and specialized area when it comes to real estate investing. Did you find that there were a lot of other operators who were kind of going after the same deals that you were? Yeah, I mean, it's always been pretty competitive. I would say back then it wasn't as competitive as it became. I think there was fewer players and more people that were just waiting for the auctions and going to buy at auction at that time. So if you were trying to jump ahead of that and figure out ways to you know, transact deals and structure deals ahead of that, that would be profitable and resolve the problems. I think that was, there was less people doing that, you know, so it worked and, you know, direct mail was the primary marketing method and, you know, just taking calls, talking to people, meeting them at their houses, working out deals. That's how it went. And there's always competitors. There always has been, 
certainly got more competitive over the years in terms of activity, pre-foreclosure activity, and just the type of marketing that you do for that. So, Nice. And a lot of our listeners may be newer to real estate. Could you kind of take us through like a typical pre-foreclosure deal that you did? Sure. You know, so you would get a list of the properties that are noticed for foreclosure and you want to get obviously that list as close to the time of availability as possible to be the first in line to have a chance to communicate with somebody that might be in distress and might need a solution, you know, and then make your marketing plan to do the outreach, whether that's door knocking, phone calls, direct mail. Those are typically how it's done. Nowadays, you've got social media and internet and things like that too. (laughs) And then, you know, basically try and gather information, see what the situation is. Is there equity in the house? Are they underwater? Why are they behind? Are they interested in selling? Do they really want to keep the home? You know, what's the scenario and how can you bring a viable solution to the table that would be you know, help them resolve their problems and also be potentially profitable. Yeah. So you find a, a place in foreclosure, pre-foreclosure, and, and you've, you've got this person on the line. Like, I guess, what are maybe some of the solutions that you've, you've come up with in order to profit it off the, the deal? Well, you know, back then, the main thing that we were focused on was offering them a lease back and a repurchase option. So buying the property from them, I mean, generally you're just trying to buy properties. You're buying it, trying to buy properties below market and create a spread to market or retail or unlock some type of value in the property through development, redevelopment, that sort of thing. You know, bridge the gap that somebody that's in financial distress may not be able to bridge because that property may not be conventionally financeable for a retail buyer. And yet the person living in it doesn't have the resources to fix it up or solve the physical problems or title problems that might exist, you know, so bridging that gap. But doing a lease purchase option back with the seller was one way to, you know, give them an opportunity to stay in the property and even potentially buy it back for a profitable spread to the investors. So we would come in with the necessary capital to reinstate the loan, resolve the foreclosure situation purchase the property, so control the title of the property, lease it back to the person who had become in financial distress, and give them an option to buy it back that would create a a spread if they exercised the option. Nice. I personally think that type of transaction can definitely be a win-win. It is, you know, the statistics and my experience would show that probably only about 20% of people ever exercised that option. Yeah. to do the buyback. Uh, most they, they were kind will, of in distress for a reason, right? So they'd have yeah, to, exactly. to make changes some sort of, to really keep the place. But I mean, certainly there's some people that do. Yeah, there's some people that work really, really hard over the term and to correct their credit or resolve whatever financial issues they had and manage to pull it together and do that. But the vast majority do not. But it at least gives them a chance. It gives them some hope and a little bit of a reprieve and a, and a way to figure out a next step while they're there, you know, and stop the immediate threat of foreclosure and eviction, which would be usually the next thing. What I've always found with people that get into those situations is they fell mostly almost into two categories. One that we're calling a lot of people back and trying to figure out options right away, being realistic and trying to set something up as even just a plan B in case their miraculous 
financial windfall that they all hope for might not come about. And then there's the majority who pretty much stick their head in the sand and hope it's all going to go away until like the last week or so. And then they get really nervous because they know the inevitable is happening. It's and looming at that point, you get the call. Soon, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so anyways, you know, it's an interesting business because yeah, there's the pre-planning and that's a whole different type of conversation. And then there's the, you know, last minute, triage wiring money that you know night before day of auctions to trustees and making sure that goes through and drafting paperwork on the fly i mean it's it's exciting yeah, yeah. that sounds, <laughs> that sounds very yeah. exciting for sure <laughs> you have so it was more yeah it, it was more fun than you know billing hours and it was more lucrative and so you know i ended up kind of going into that and you know just doing joint ventures and partnerships with people on different things too but yeah, so that was one way. One thing I want to point out is that doing the lease purchase option transaction has pretty much been eliminated at this point in time because of some statutes that came on the books a little while back. Mm-hmm. Which, because there there were certainly operators I would call the bad apples who would, you know, abuse those types of situations and take advantage of people. And then what you have is sort of legislative overreach that kiboshes the whole thing. And, you know, so you can't really do that anymore without taking significant okay. risk. So I guess in this auction area and, you know, the pre-foreclosure area, what do you think are your keys to success to successfully navigating these seemingly very difficult and complex situations? Well, you know, I think obviously having the legal background give me a bit of a leg up in terms of understanding the statutory processes, understanding how to read and decipher title reports, manufacture and deliver and negotiate the contracts involved. So, you know, really familiarizing yourself with all three of those and building relationships with attorneys who understand it, I would say is probably a key really understanding title issues, you know, how to read in a title report and how to deal with different exceptions that might appear there, which are basically liens, judgments, other mortgages, back taxes, things of that nature. That becomes pretty critical in evaluating deals, really thoroughly understanding the statutory process of whatever foreclosure or tax foreclosure or judicial foreclosure that you're dealing with. You know, those are important things to dig into and understand if you're going to operate in that arena. What would you say the learning curve is on all of that? I mean, just junior, senior liens and the different types of foreclosure. I mean, I guess it just depends where you're coming from. Yeah, there's a lot to learn. I wouldn't probably start doing that as a novice real estate investor off the bat on my own. I would probably be looking to partner with somebody who's already been doing it for a while and knows all that and then learn from them and kind of bring them leads or, you know, do some of the grunt work to really kind of cut your teeth and yeah, like really finding finding some value for someone that's done it before, like coming in and and doing a lot of the legwork. I mean, if you're younger and you've got a lot of time on your hands, like really kind of coming in and doing the, the brunt of the work to gain the knowledge from someone. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, that's 
somewhat what I even did, even, you know, I had the legal background, but I didn't really understand creative real estate transactions. And I had to learn that by partnering with people who did. And also, you know, there is an element of just taking some risk and getting in there and doing. I mean, I've learned way more just by doing deals and dealing with all these different unique situations than I've ever learned from any book or seminar or even, you know, I guess partnerships is part of the doing. But yeah, you do. There is at some point just getting in there and actively doing it and giving it a shot and then sort of, you know, learning as you go. And then as you were got out of these like lease options, kind of tell us a little bit more about what you're kind of into now or what you're doing now. Yeah, I mean, out of that just kind of grew more just diversifying into different ways of finding a motivated seller. I mean, really, you know, most of what we do boils down to finding a motivated seller that they have some motivation to sell on terms or on at a price that uh, provides a profit potential and then managing that transaction through to the end sale or the end refinance and hold where you're going to profit off the transaction, you know, and there's just a lot of different ways of doing that. And I've explored many of them <laughs> and, you know, tried a lot of different ways and the market constantly changes. So you really have to adapt both to competitors that come in you know, maybe there's a popular method of marketing or niche area that people gravitate towards for a while, you know, or, and maybe the market changes like it is right now where there's no foreclosures practically. Yeah. There's none. I mean, it, the moratorium's on. So anybody whose whole business model is based on going down and bidding at auctions, you better have adapted or you're done right now. Yeah. So, you know, that's being adaptable and just creative and, learning and trying new things, you know, is kind of, I think how you, you grow and build it over time. You know, right now I do kind of all of the above and lately we've been, we've had a lot more probate deals lately, probate slash foreclosures. Seems like a lot of those have come up as kind of the stragglers amongst the deluge of foreclosures that started back in 2009, 10 and and so forth. That pretty much all worked its way out of the system. But there were some stragglers and more when you have an up market like we've had for a while, there's less just general distress foreclosure. Like, Yeah, there's, there's probably a ton of equity in a lot of places, right? So, I mean, even if, if yeah, someone gets so a loan, they're, they're still going to, they're still going to, you know, require some equity. And if the property value goes up, then there's even more equity. So presumably there's like a deal somewhere in there, but Probably there's a lot of competition for our, that as well. Yeah, more competition and more opportunities for that person not to become in as much distress because they can yeah. simply sell and, and pay off all their debt. Whereas in the markets like we're going to be heading into, that may, or, that may not be the case so much. So then you have to creatively figure out deal-making strategies that work with low equity positions or no or negative equity positions, things of that nature. and you know, that could be short sales, lender workouts, subject to deals where you can still cash flow the property based on servicing the underlying debts and, you know, things like that. Yeah, you touched on what you believe is coming down the pipeline with government stimulus ending and an extremely overvalued real estate market and stock market happening. 
do you want to expand a little bit upon your prediction or opinions? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I was just reading the wall street journal this morning, some articles and just confirmed what I already knew that January and, or maybe it's going to be now February is going to be the highest number of eviction filings ever all across the country. You know, there's just this whole pandemic and the economic ramifications of it have caused job loss have caused that leads to inability to pay rent, inability to pay mortgage. And there's been these temporary relief measures put into place with the extended unemployment, the stimulus, the lending programs, and the COVID forbearance programs that have all kind of allowed that can to be kicked down the road. And the end of that road is coming up this spring and summer. And there's just going to be a deluge of, you know, what happens then, what happens when that runs out, because it can't go on forever. And so you're going to start seeing cracks in the dam start forming, I believe, this spring, where, for example, the landlords who haven't been getting paid since May, because the tenants can pretty much just not pay and sit there in your property. They're going to start feeling the stress of it, especially if they weren't able to or didn't take advantage of getting into a COVID forbearance program or that program is ending. You know, how long can they go paying their mortgage without any income and all the other bills that go along with ownership of property? So they're going to start becoming distressed sellers. Then you've got all the people who were in COVID forbearances on their primary residences who Nothing really changed for the positive or they spent through whatever savings they had during this time. And now they're faced with paying that current. I have a feeling that a lot of lenders or maybe all the federally backed lenders are going to have some mechanism to plug that onto the end of the loans and sort of, you know, there's going to be some sort of modification, I believe, because otherwise there's just going to be this massive initiation of foreclosures that happens. But there's going to be problems, <laughs> you know, it's not, that's not going to solve everybody's problem. Yeah. Nothing, nothing ever happens. Overnight, right. It's not like you create a magical form and then like all of that suddenly happens amongst however many mortgage servicers there are and then mortgage bankers. And it's a huge industry to make changes in a little amount of time is pretty tough. I mean, I guess the fed can, yeah, it plays out over interest years. rates, but you know, for actually changing all the documentation where, I mean, most mortgages are, against a specific property and there's language in there on like how it's supposed to be handled. And I mean, a lot of that stuff is some of them are fairly old too, right? Yeah. And they're wrapped up in different mortgage backed securities and they're serviced by different entities than those entities that actually own the notes. And there's agreements there that have to be worked out. So it is a massive problem and this (laughs) sort of, you know, quick band-aid approach. Yeah, which is great for guys like me. I mean, yeah. you know, not to, uh, you know, like, you know, I like vultures. Vultures are actually very noble animals. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I like it. Important purpose. Is that your power <laughs> animal? <laughs> it, might, it may be. <laughs> actually, no, but it's actually a cougar, but that's another story. Okay. <laughs> we'll have to get that Don't one later. That. <laughs> <laughs> so... In this future that you just described, where do you think you'll be focusing your efforts? I mean, you know, I've got 
a lot of different irons in the fire and you know over time my business and experience has grown and i've gotten into commercial and development projects and things like that so you know i'm not as as focused on like say single family distressed properties as i once was but it's still a good bread and butter business there's still opportunity to bring value and make a lot of money doing it you know working out these problems that people have and you know so i think that i just know that this deluge like we just talked about is coming so i think it makes sense to sort of be positioned having already gained experience and knowledge and background dealing with all that to be ready for it and you know i assume that there's just going to be a lot more opportunity in that area this coming year and probably for several years i'm hearing you're saying that the faucet's going to get turned back on that kind of a a good analogy (laughs) yeah and hopefully some (laughs) competitors got shaken out in this drought (laughs) (laughs) cool i had kind of another question for you like in your like lease lease back options and and auctions like what are some of the pitfalls that if someone was like trying to start out in this, that you would caution caution against? Yeah, I mean, we touched on it a little bit, but really understanding title, what you're bidding on is important. I've seen people lose their life savings, essentially bidding on junior lien mortgages that they thought were senior liens. And, you know, there's just no way out of that. I've seen them try to even litigate their way out of it and lose. And go oh, back so they lost their um, twice. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, if you're dealing with redemption rights, for example, there's just risk in it. There's certain things you can mitigate risk by knowledge, but there are also unknowns that do pop up. So make sure that you're capitalized well enough to, you know, bear whatever risk you're taking. First of all, you have to really understand the risk you're taking and then be willing to bear the risk of loss. Obviously, calculate that you have a greater chance of gain than loss in any given deal or transaction, but those are the keys. And so how do you mitigate risk in, say, the foreclosure realm? Well, you mitigate risk by really understanding the legal process you're dealing with 100% backwards and forwards by understanding how title law works, how eviction law works, and you know, also just having experience evaluating properties and what type of, you know, renovations and things that you might be walking into so you know having done many 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 rehabs you kind of get a feel for you can do a walkthrough on a property in about 10 or 15 minutes and have a, have a pretty spot on with how general much kind of spend. sense of like how much it's going to cost i mean at least in the in the five thousand yeah. dollars or something like that yeah I, I mean, now all that comes yeah. in and then an investor for sure. I mean, I know that Chris or I walk into a place and we got a good sense of like what's going on or how, how much it's going to take. That's pretty Yeah, important. but when you're starting out, you got to rely on third parties. So make yeah. sure you build in the time you need, figure it out so you can get the people in there that have that experience to tell you what you don't know. Yeah. So build in the time to do your evaluation of title, of the process, you know, with your attorneys, with your other advisors, with your contractors, with your inspectors, you know, all those things are going to save your butt Yeah, when you're starting out. So one of the things that I'm kind of hearing is you really need to know what you're trying to gain. And then you 
have to evaluate the risk and make sure that the potential gain that you have some percentage chance to receive is worth the risk. Do you have a rough idea of like what percentage risk of a total loss versus like how are you looking for like three X, five X, 10 X on well, you know, there's so many variables with real estate and different types of deals that I don't think that it can quite be boiled down to that simplistic of a formula. But, you know, there's just, yeah, they're just, it's deal by deal, essentially. And yeah, I mean, I try to mitigate my risk to where there's almost no way I can lose unless there's some catastrophic and highly unlikely event that occurs. You know, I like to find hit money that's sitting in the corner and, and nobody really kind of sees it and I just go pick it up. You know, that's the best <laughs> thing. And those things aren't just available for in view. They're not sitting out there on the MLS, for example. You yeah. got to go find it, right? You got to go dig up that deal. Yeah. And I mean, so sometimes sometimes it's is, under a rock in the corner of the yard, right? Like you got to find it. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And you got to be digging, you got to be searching, you got to be looking, you got to be Hovering above, looking at, you know, 100 different properties, you know, dialing in on 10 that might be worth kicking around to make an offer, making offers, and then narrowing that down to closing on one deal, you know, and that's just the way it is on any level. But the number one thing to also keep in mind is you're going to make your money when you buy. If you didn't make your money when you bought, you're probably going to lose money, right? Yeah. So buying right doing all that work on the front end so that the balance of managing through to the end of the transaction is more or less a paint-by-numbers process, like I said, unless something unusual or extraordinary comes up. That's, you know, that's the key. That's like the biggest lesson that's hard to learn, especially when you're starting out and you don't really know how to go find that deal. And all these people are throwing things in your face, especially, I would say, at least in my experience, real estate brokers who want to make a transaction and aren't necessarily the ones risking their principal in the deal, you know, it might look neat to them on paper without really digging into all the costs and all the risk and everything involved in that. And what's at the end of the day, you know, I see people chasing, you know, new, especially new investors chasing deals that they might make, you know, 10, 20,000 on if everything goes great and they're lucky and they think that's a great deal and on an average house in portland i'm probably not even interested in it unless i can see an initial profit of fifty thousand. you know so you know it just it kind of there's just a lot of variables but understanding that you're going to make your money on that purchase and and not to pull the trigger until you're you've lined it up to where that's almost an irrefutable fact will keep you out of trouble Cool. That is very good advice. I really like all that. Well, Chris, I think we're going to get into our last four questions here. The first one is, what's a piece of advice you would give your 25-year-old self? Well, you know, I think that it would be to just start that process of learning and education outside of, you know, what at, at that point I had learned through school and books and things, you know. So starting to take actions And I would say, you know, with the timeline of my life at 25, if I had, you know, maybe purchased some Apple or Amazon stock, that might not have hurt either, but. (laughs) (laughs) Hindsight's 2020, right? (laughs) But the thing is, 
I think getting involved in technology, the technology side of things, even in the real estate business earlier on would probably help. But that time is, you know, that's obviously, but really that, you know, in a general sense, the learning and going outside of your field to continually educate yourself that's going to give you a leg up over time. Well, Chris, what was your first entrepreneurial endeavor? I know we touched a little bit like right after you got, you went to work for an attorney and then, or as an attorney and then kind of went out. Was that your first entrepreneurial endeavor or did you have something before that? No, I think I'd probably go back to when I was in college and I worked for a moving company and the way they did everything was everybody was an independent contractor. And so you had to start your own business essentially. So um, I started my first LLC, which was done right moving. And it was up in the Seattle area. And, you know, by the end of the summer, I was definitely a lot stronger. (laughs) (laughs) But these guys, you know, all these guys had bought their own trucks, you know, eventually. And they were essentially their own independent operators and they were encouraging me like, you know, buy a truck, Chris, you know, we can make this much money. And, you know, but by the end of the summer, I definitely decided that I wanted to go back to school. <laughs> That's <laughs> a good call. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that worked out, but that was the interesting uh, summer. And that was kind of my first, I would say, entrepreneurial venture in a sense. What did you learn from that? Like, what are some of the takeaways? Oh, I mean, you know, from that experience, gosh, just that, I mean, for me, it was that I didn't really want to do manual labor <laughs> for the rest of my life. Or, I think we all know, kind of had go, that one, essentially. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? So, I mean, that was a big, you know, it was, but it was also, I think just, I don't know how to describe it, but I just felt like there was something else better out there, you know? And so even though I could see these guys were doing okay, it seemed like there was a lot of limitations on billing. You know, you're still billing hours of your time and it's a limited market. It's a competitive market. And so that also was a limitation that I came up against as an attorney where there's only so many hours in the day. And even, you know, there was a point in time after the downturn where I started my own law firm and you know, got myself up to billing top rates for Portland. But even, you know, there's only so many hours in the day, so many hours I could bill. And that put a cap on my income. And it became very, you know, more and more stressful as you start to try and build more people under you and build up a law firm. I mean, you know, I kind of reevaluated and said, I can just do less work, have a way less stressful lifestyle and make more money and have opportunities to, you know, hit those home runs and build wealth in a way that isn't going to require my actual time and energy on a day-to-day basis. So that's one of the beauties of real estate leverage, being able to have a passive income stream at some point, and then also being able to creatively structure and manufacture these, what I would call home run deals, you know? You really talk about getting out of, you know, trading your time for money and instead of that trading your knowledge or ability for a lump sum or, you know, like a project or something like that. And it doesn't allow you to limit the amount of, you know, money that you can charge for that, right? Yeah, exactly. And it's, it involves risk and risk management and being able to handle that, 
Yeah. You know, and so if you can apply that, if you can apply risk and risk management and risk capital. Yeah, I really love how you kind of have described something that, you know, both AJ and I managed to learn, but probably didn't didn't fully realize it the same way that you did. It's just like that hourly income trap. It is a, a total zero sum, like opportunity. There's only so many hours in the day. And there is a large majority of the population that just, you know, hasn't really dug into the limitations of trading time for money. And it's something that we're excited to help educate people about. Yeah, exactly. And the education is the key because you have to build up a financially valuable skill set in order to break out of that and earn more from applying the leverage, you know, the leverage that that enables you to have to the time that you have available because we all have the same amount of time, you know, in each day, in each week, in each year. And you have to be able to leverage that with specialized knowledge, skills and, you know, you can leverage it through debt on real estate. You can leverage it through networking with people. And you know, leverage is the key, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So the third of our fourth exit question, how has your formal and informal training shaped your real estate journey? I mean, we've kind of covered a lot of that. It really has. I mean, formal education going all the way through Law school definitely helped with some foundational skills with, you know, understanding contracts, negotiations, issue spotting, communication, just really solid communication skills. I think it's been one of my personal unfair advantages in this industry. And then informal education, like I said, has been tons of, you know, books, seminars, courses, just always trying to learn something new to be able to adapt to a market change or you know, gain additional leverage or additional tools that I can put in the toolbox to approach a deal in a way that, you know, competitors may not have thought of and produce, you know, some value by doing that. So I think that always continuing informal education and even formal education, things like, you know, CE courses that you can take, I always get on those when they're topics that would interest me, even though I don't have any, you know, licensing requirements any anymore. You know, so it's, yeah, you got to do that. And it's not only to your financial benefit, but it just keeps life interesting, I think. Well, and it probably, I mean, to that effect, like hopping on other CE credits and stuff, like it helps with your ability to assess risk, right? Like if you know more about like what the person you're selling to, or, you know, say for example, like a 1031, and you know that you're working with someone at 1031, like there's that knowledge that allows you to assess the risk on, on the deal. So I think, you know, Chris and I have always been big proponents of continual learning and it really sounds like you're, you're in that same boat too. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, not only like assessing risk, but just bringing that creative idea to the table. Like you might find a seller who's reluctant to sell because they're just not educated about 1031 or opportunity zones or charitable remainder trusts or things like that. And if you can educate them, you might create a deal where there would never have been a deal without that knowledge coming to the table. And even bringing that knowledge to the table sometimes adds to the rapport that you have with that relationship too, which can be a big factor in in the deal making. So yeah, exactly. You're educating the, the person on the other side of the table and 
by doing so, then showing them the value that you're bringing and yeah. you know, everybody appreciates that. Yep. That's awesome. All right. What was the one deal that got away? Your Moby Dick. <laughs> yeah, I thought about that question. <laughs> I mean, there's definitely a, a number of them. <laughs> <laughs> the one I want to talk about, though, is it's here in Portland. It's a property that's on Southwest 6th and College downtown. And at the time, it was McBool's Deli, Delicatessen, over by the Portland Community College. And it still is McBool's Delicatessen. <laughs> but at one time, it was supposed to be a high-rise condo building. <laughs> that was about 2007. So I can yeah. imagine, wow. imagine what happened next. But, you know, the thing was, we had put together a partnership. I think it was six or seven people, and several of whom had not worked together before. That's a difficult thing to do, especially on a bigger and more complicated commercial transaction development project. The personality clashes did not help. <laughs> and the market timing was also horrible in hindsight, but yeah. nobody knew that at the time. But yeah, as those cracks started to show where lenders were not lending on condo projects anymore, we attempted to quickly sell the property. But I would say the greed and the clinging and the personality clashes and lack of communication amongst the principals led to a place where I had brought in a buyer and I had negotiated a deal and I thought it was a great deal. We would have all gotten out. We would have each made a little bit of money and we could have all moved on happily, but no, <laughs> they wanted to push it just a little bit farther. And, you know, I was relatively new, especially in development game at that point, and deferring to these more experienced, wealthier partners. And, you know, they blew it. They just completely blew it. They just, they got a little too greedy at the wrong time. And the sale never happened. It was terminated. And I was there probably about a year later after all the litigation and BS at the courthouse steps down at Monoma County watching you go to. <laughs> go to the highest bidder for oh. a hell of a lot less. <laughs> wow. Less than what you had offered. Yeah. Yeah. Heck yeah. So, you know, they got away and there was a lot of lessons learned on that one. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds like a tough one. We kind of follow up like now that you've had gone through that experience, like what could you have done differently or would have done differently? Well, you know, a lot of different things. I think that part of it was just not trying to bring in people that were had just coming from so many different directions and hadn't worked together before. That was, like I said, I think a fundamental problem with the partnership and too greedy in a time where it was time to not be greedy, basically. <laughs> that was a big part of it. And then, you know, just you can't, you know, swim out of a quagmire with clenched fists. You have to let go of something to get out of it. Yeah. And the people involved weren't, you know, that was definitely part of it. Well, yeah, that sounds like an unfortunate spot. And, you know, sounds like you're much better off for it. Well, Chris, that's kind of our show for today. And I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your experience and sharing your knowledge. We really appreciate it. So 
is there anything else that you wanted to, yeah. before you depart, like send to our listeners? Well, no, I mean, we've covered a lot. Yeah, we've covered a lot <laughs> of it, right? <laughs> well, I think, you know, it's just stick to the basics. I mean, we covered a lot of it. There's a lot of opportunity. You do have to take some risk. Nobody's going to hold your hand and hand it to you on a silver platter. So it's out there, but you got to go for it. Yeah. I think you really touched on some amazing basics of real estate. One of them is just you make your money on the buy. And then the other is that you have to take action and take risks. So those are two things that AJ and I always talk about when it comes to being a successful real estate investor. And, you know, it's good to hear it from uh, <laughs> some other people. colleagues. Yep. Yeah. Great. Well, thanks guys. Yeah. yeah thank, thank you. you. Really appreciate it. And we'll be in touch. We'll let you know when we publish it and, you know, share it with everyone. We appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. And maybe one of these days we'll be able to get together for beers again. <laughs> right. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast on WIN, your community for investing knowledge for growth. Please take a second to rate us so that we can get more great investors to interview. If you or someone you know wants to be on, please go to westsideinvestors.com and fill out our form.